There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which this week comes live from my regular MK3D show recorded at the BFI South Bank. Guests on this week's show include Peter Bradshaw, whose new book is a collection of his film reviews, Wad Al-Khatib, the director of The Astonishing Forsama, Dolly Wells and Emily Mortimer, who've just worked together on the new feature Good Posture, and Jason Isaacs, talking about Hotel Mumbai, Event Horizon, and a whole lot more. So sit back and enjoy this Kermit on Film podcast live from the BFI South Bank. So I have just come back from Strasbourg, where I was at this. This is the Festival European du Film Fantastique de Strasbourg, or as I call it, the Strasbourg Fancy Film Festival. It's the weirdest thing. Five days in Strasbourg, and literally people coming up to me saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. What is going on in your country? Um, I'd just like to say that as of walking on stage, I have no idea what the Labour position on Brexit is, but that may have changed by the time we come off. Who knows? Um, anyways, yes, yeah, so I was in, uh, in Strasbourg doing this. I got invited. I, got, I was on the jury, right, which is a big thing. I don't think I've done a jury before. And so this is the jury. Um, this is me here. There we go. This is Body Giovanazzo, who made uh, Combat Shot, which some of you are sort of cult horror fans will know. Uh, this is Angel, who is a brilliant uh, journalist. This is our fabulous translator, Rachel. And uh, this was us giving the fantastic film prize to In Fabric. As you know, we've had a couple of guests from In Fabric on the show. Steve Oram came on. Haley came on. Have we ever had Peter Strickland? No, we need to get Peter Strickland. When Peter Strickland uh, won the award, he was at another festival um, doing something else he hadn't expected. So they said, can you send us a video because you've won the award? He said, okay. And he's this is very Peter Strickland. He sent us a video of his minibar. It's <laughs> literally what he did. He opened the minibar and then he did an acceptance speech with the camera looking at the minibar. And then he won another prize. And for the other prize, he showed us a video of looking out of his hotel window. But at no point did he feature in it. We also gave a jury commendation to um, this brilliant film, which is called Little Joe, which is also playing. So In Fabric played at the LFF a couple of years ago. Little Joe is playing at the LFF uh, in some, a couple of weeks' time. This is a really, really great fancy film. Also, the good lady, Professor Her Indoors, was on the crossover jury and their award for best film went to this now you have to stick with me because I know this doesn't sound the most promising thing a film called Dogs Don't Wear Pants <laughs> I know it is the best finished film about grief and sadomasochism that you have ever seen <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really good I really really liked it and it's playing uh, at the LFF in a, in a couple of weeks time so thank you that was just genius and it was like it was like we're going do you want to do another should we do one more question before we move on uh, was there another hand there or are we done 
Anyone else? There? Well, let's go there. Yeah, there. We'll just do you quickly. Wait, wait, wait. Going to run a mic to you. So it's all fabulously podcast. Oh, yes, I should have pointed that out at the beginning. You need to know this is all recorded for the podcast. Anything you say may be taken down and used in evidence against you. So anyway. Uh, just a quick one. What do you think is the best advertising campaign for a film this year? Oh, the best... I'll tell you what I think it is, because I haven't seen the film. The best advertising campaign for a film this year is Joker. I haven't seen Joker, but that trailer really makes me want to see Joker. And I haven't seen it, so I don't know if it's any good, but if I did a, a thing with uh, Jack Howard just a couple of weeks ago when we, did a, we were live from the London Podcast Festival, and we showed the trailer, and the trailer kind of got like almost a standing ovation. I know everyone's seen it now, but I think it's a really, really good trailer. I have no idea what the film's going to be like, but the trailer makes it look like it's basically king of comedy. Which is, you know, which I'm, I'm, I'm hugely in favour of. Okay, fine. So we'll do more audience questions if and when the time allows. Uh, let's move on to our first. I can't remember. I can't even remember which order we're in for this stuff, Nick. I'm. Oh yes, LFF. Fine. Thank you very much. It's because I got confused by changing everything around, having a question. Fine. So, as you know, the LFF is coming uh, here in a very short, uh, in a very near future. We're going to show the trailer for the NF LFF, and I'm going to bring out an esteemed colleague to talk you through some of the highlights. Here is the London Film Festival trailer. Yeah. Hello, neighbor. you want to risk it all? I want to use what I'm good at. Second to the 13th of October, the London Film Festival. Please uh, welcome to join me on stage and talk through a few selections from the London Film Festival and much, much more. The Guardian's fabulous film critic, Peter Bradshaw. I always give guests the choice. They can either sit near or close. It depends which one it was. Um, so, now, obviously, because you're a hardened festival goer, which I'm not. So, I mean, no. basically, my year of festivals is Shetland, yes. and then this year, Strasbourg. So, you've seen some stuff that's playing at the LFF. What are your sort of picks of stuff that we should be looking out for? Well, I mean, there are some things which I really, really want to see. I haven't seen it. Obviously, the big one is The Irishman, which we saw there. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Irishman. I've, I've, I've read um, the, the book by the notorious Philadelphia hitman, Frank. Sheeran, no relation of Ed. I keep calling him Ed Sheeran. Um, <laughs> and it's got, I mean, just the very fact to know, the fact alone they brought Joe Pesci out of retirement yeah, yeah. to play the sinister New York uh, wise guy, Russell Buffalino. I mean, my mouth is watering. And right they've, used, they've used de-aging technology yeah. on the faces. Yeah, that's why Netflix got involved, is they were the only people who would stump up for the staggering amounts of money they would use. I'm... I'm kind of I don't agnostic. Know you notice, but I've I've been <laughs> I've been digitally de-aged. I'm 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 94. Yeah. Strangely, I'm I'm analog only. This is analog. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's what cost the money. I st I I'm I'm the jury's out on that aspect of it. Okay. I think it it looks a bit like Grand Theft Auto when they come when when Robert <laughs> De Niro comes on. But I it's no more unconvincing than just using wigs and latex and everything like that. So I've got no problem with it all, and I'm absolutely salivating about this film. Okay. But I haven't seen it yet. The films that I've seen and really really want everybody to see are Monos, yeah. which is the quite extraordinary Colombian film by Alejandro uh, Lades. I think it, it is so good. It is a very strange. Apocalypse Now style 
slice of freakiness. And monos means monkeys. It's, yes, it's about... It is a slang term for these child soldiers okay. who are a kind of semi-cult, semi-platoon of kind of kid soldiers okay. up there in the jungle. They're kind of like the Shining Path in Bolivia. They're a sort of quasi-fictional, factual kind of variant. Uh, and they've gone mad amongst themselves in a kind of Lord of the Flies way. It's got a, it I know very, it's got a brilliant exciting. score by Mika Levy, which yeah. I've been playing on the Scholar Show. And that score, that music is so good. Yeah. Well, I think brilliant. all of Mika Levy's scores are really terrific, yeah. but that is a brilliant piece. Of yeah. Okay, so Monos, definitely Monos to look is out a, for. It's a, a golden ticket. The other one, it's a film I've just seen very, very recently in Toronto and it was the best film I saw and it just stole my heart it is a movie by Sarah Gavron who I think you're going to be hosting quite soon it's called Rocks yeah. uh, and it's co-written by uh, uh, Claire Coco I think um, it is just a movie set among a bunch of year 11 girls at an East London school and it stars this uh, girl called, uh, who the actress's name is Bucky Bucray. I think she's a, a, a non-professional, a newcomer, who plays a girl nicknamed Rox, and something very dramatic happens to her, and I won't say any more okay. than that. But the brilliant thing about this movie is it's at its best when nothing dramatic is happening at all, when it's just five girls hanging out, talking, laughing, and it's magical. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean it as the highest possible praise when I say it reminded me of Ken Loach's Kez in the spirit of wow. it, and Celine Yama's Bon Défi. Uh, okay, which is a, fant a which fantastic is film. It's kind of like that, and it just stole my heart. Can I just absolutely is it Shailene's? I've been saying Celine CMR for my whole life. Is it? You're, I'm, I'm sure you're right, because you're I a lot smarter know. than I am. Oh, my goodness, my dear fellow. It's that terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's Celine Sciamma. Sciamma, okay, Sciamma, fine. I think. Well, I apologise for no, mispronouncing well, her name. At least I love her films. Um, and uh, so you may... Also, but, yeah. but that, the, the Sarah Gavron, because she had yeah. come on the show before to do a guilty pleasure choice. Okay. And she played Breakfast Club, and she, this, she actually likened this to Breakfast Club. Is yeah. there a kind of yeah okay. in that the, the, the people who are absenting themselves from adult control okay. is brilliant and they are their own society uh, kind of like monos in a way but kind of funny and smart and it's just joyful and as I say it's the sort of thing you long for in films where people are just starting to riff and I think it has a kind of semi-improv dialogue I'm not sure whether it was devised or written or whether they used improvisation or what but it's it just floats away in its own world and it just it's so good really okay check it out. give us one other choice for the LFF one more I would give is a Brazilian film called Bacurau by the Brazilian filmmaker Kleber Mendonche Filho who made a couple of brilliant films one was called Aquarius and the one before that was Neighbouring Sounds. Yeah. And this is an, another very ultra-violent movie. It is a very fierce satirical attack on Jair Bolsonaro, the notorious Trumpian uh, neo-fascist leader of Brazil, who the director pretty candidly hates. And it is a, a satire on the idea of bringing in outside investment into Brazil, okay. which is what this Bolsonaro wants to do. And this is a satire on the idea of a, a tiny remote uh, country, uh, no, a, a city called Bacarau in what is known as the Sertão or the Brazilian outback in the vast and remote reaches of the northeastern part of that country. And it's a, a, a city or a, a more like a small town which vanishes. All the people on it realise when they get their iPads out and their iPhones out that their town has vanished from their GPS systems. Okay. And they don't know why. And they realise 
there is a very, very sinister government conspiracy afoot to wipe them out. And you know it's sinister because a certain actor comes on, namely Udo Kier. Oh, right. And when okay. Udo Kier comes on, you think, oh boy, this isn't, this isn't a musical comedy. Something very, very bad is going to happen. And so it proves. And so it proves. Uh, it's an amazing film. Okay, listen, thanks for those tips. Now, I found myself in a situation the other day. I was thinking, you know, I wish, I wish that I had a volume which collected your brilliant film writings in them. And, and you know, almost coincidentally... <laughs> There it is. This weighty doorstopper well, of a book. Landed on your, on your now the be- your, so yeah. I want to have a, a little yeah. uh, conversation with you about some of the reviews in this. Fabulous writing as always. I mean, I think you are Britain's leading film critic. The one thing about this, Please. there is a Ron Burgundy quality to the title here yeah. because you, it's not the films that made me; it's the films, films that, that made, made me. me. Laugh or scream <laughs> yeah, yeah. or cry or whatever. So this has to be said as I'd like a copy of Peter Bradshaw's The Films That Made Me. <laughs> now, it really needs me to say, stay classy, stand so, Exactly. Now, I wanted to begin by just picking a couple yeah. of things that you and I don't particularly agree on. One of them. Surely not. <laughs> Surely not. One of them was now Synecdoche, New York, yeah. which is a film that you gave five stars to. My only regret is I couldn't give it six, but yeah, because you were huge fans. So here is the opening line of yeah. Synecdoche, New York. Um, you said the film is either a masterpiece or a massively dysfunctional act of self-indulgence and self-laceration. Now I have to say, I thought it was the latter. <laughs> But re- I, think, I think it's the latter as well, but in a good way. But you, but you do defend it passionately in a way that after I'd read that review, I thought, you know, I should see this again because maybe I'm missing something. Well, I had to see it again. I watched it, I think, two or three times before writing that. Okay. I had no idea what to make of it when I first saw it. I saw it at the Cannes Film Festival, which is always a very interesting place to see films because you literally are seeing a film completely afresh without any of the cultural superstructure that usually yeah. comes with seeing a film. Because usually, even when professional critics see a film, they're seeing something that three or four other people have seen before, and if you want, you can sort of renegotiate your position. You can triangulate it with other reviews. But Cannes, it's absolutely new and fresh, which is incidentally why I love Cannes. I know you hate Cannes. I actually love it, but for all my exasperations with it. But it is a very, very mad film. And I know that's a word which we use very lightly. We say films are crazy all the time. I genuinely think there is a kind of madness in it. It reminded me in the weirdest ways when I first read Samuel Beckett when I was 17, which wow. is this overwhelming sense of pessimism. Now, I don't share the film's pessimism. I'm naturally an optimistic bloke. But there is something, I don't know, resplendent, has a kind of magnificence in its crazy pessimism. It it sort of draws you into its mad world of life is disappointing and death is inevitable. (laughs) And I'm thinking, wow, I love it already. (laughs) Why? I don't know. I hear you talking about it and I just think, it bored the tits off me, but you, you know, it's... (laughs) (laughs) I want to see the film. Oh, you must. I want to. Okay, now... This is a sore point, okay? Oh, right. This is a one-star review for the Twilight Saga Eclipse, oh, no. which incidentally, Pete... <laughs> and so the parable of the unpopped cherry goes on. <laughs> and on. The epic of the unbroken duck continues as the final whistle blows on the third Eclipse movie after more than two hours with still nothing on the scoreboard. Virginal high school teen Bella Swan is starting to make Doris Day look like the nympho from hell. Now... Well, it's it's very funny you said part of my... Explain yourself, Bradshaw. Part of my kind of hysterical rage against that was 
partly because I really, genuinely, really like the first Twilight. It's one of those no, things. No, you did. That is I fair. did, you and did, I'm yeah. a huge fan of Catherine Hardwick, um, who, who directed it. I genuinely, like a lot of franchise movies, I always think the first one was absolutely brilliant, and the next movies, however well-regarded they are, I don't like as much. I felt the same about Terminator, actually. That The, fir the, the first Terminator <laughs> was so good. Uh, Terminator, Twilight, same sort of thing. Um, <laughs> I did so good, and I really, really liked it, and I think I got it. Okay. I got the idea of sexual abstinence, which I was sort of taking the mickey out of there, but in fact, it's a perfectly valid metaphorical reading of the film. It's perfectly valid, but I just felt that... more than that, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, oh, listen, I mean, here's the thing. I do think... Ask me if you agree with this. I love the Twilight films. I mean, I love them, and I will do Twilight marathons. I will watch all five of them, you know, back to back, because I really love them. Do you think there is any part of you that dislike Twilight because of who you are? Because you are, and this was the, the thing that was always, middle-aged men won't get Twilight. No, I don't think so at all. How dare you call me middle-aged? I'm <laughs> Um, I, I was going to ask you, Mark, I wonder if you have a, a, a teenage daughter growing up at the yes, same time. Yes, of course time I do. Yeah. Ah, well, uh, yeah. I leave that to the jury as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, in that maybe, case... Yes, I, I don't know. I, I felt that there was a kind of... I, again, I'm not being entirely facetious when I say that there was a kind of semi-accidental gay thing going on between Taylor Lautner and uh, Robert Pattinson, which I felt was accidental. And I felt that I'm a, if I'm picking it up, then something's wrong. There's a disturbance It's a in the film course. with two blokes running around with their... It's not yeah. accidental. It's there. It's like, okay, so listen. So this... Now, this I was surprised by this, because yeah. I remembered you liking this more than I did. This is Lars yeah. von Trier's Antichrist. Okay? Right. What genre does Antichrist belong to? Scary movie, extreme horror, psychological drama none of the above. It is a practical joke, an exquisitely malicious hoax, a superbly engineered wind-up disguised as a film. Borat and Bruno have got nothing on Lars von Trier. <laughs> Well, now again, I cannot fault that your writing is, is matchless. Um, I actually thought that Antichrist was a pretty good horror film. I, I, I will say this. I've, I've watched it again since then, and I'm, I, I will concede its technique, uh, especially the scenes at the beginning, the weird dreamlike scenes at mm -hmm. the beginning. I have to say, of all the kind of great European shock tactic maestros like Michael Haneke and Gaspar Noé and all these people like that, Lars von Trier is the only one who just has not grown on me. I, although I'll say this, I genuinely think he is a kind of genius yep. in a way that... I, I don't think anybody else is, or even though the directors who I think are immeasurably superior to him, but he's a genius at something other than filmmaking. He's a genius at a kind of provocation and situationist pranksterism where your unhappiness is 40% of the effect, and to appreciate it, to appreciate it, you have to share Lars von Trier's delight in your own unhappiness when you're watching it. I think it would be great to have him play a Batman supervillain because he is a kind of Batman supervillain. He's like the Riddler. Every time I've watched the Lars von Trier the movie, it's like seeing the Riddler come up on stage and cackle, and everybody on this, everybody in the audience is Commissioner Gordon. But we've got no Batman to help us. Nobody. We've just got to. We've got to say that. Um, I, I have. I've felt that way for so long about Lars von Trier. I quite liked Nymphomaniac. I quite liked that. But ever since I watched... I remember when I first saw Breaking the Waves... Yeah, I hate Breaking the Waves. Uh, well, funnily enough, because I didn't know anything about Lars von Trier, I thought, 
well, that's interesting. Wow, okay, interesting. I don't know what's going on, but fine. And the thing about the Scottish religious sect praying for people to go to hell, that's, you know, that's powerful. And it wasn't for hours afterwards I thought, of course there isn't a religious sect praying for people to go to hell. It's Lars von Trier taking the piss. Yeah, yeah. And when you, when you reach that decision, you think, oh, I yeah. get it. Yeah. But I, it's amazing how he's got away with it. I do think that years. there's an awful lot of his films which do make you go, oh, Lars. You know, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. You know, but I have to say, I think of all of them, Antichrist is the one, is the one that really now the other thing is that there, it, there are some lovely sort of points of convergence. You love. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin as much yes, as I do. Yes. However, the real delight in this book, Pete, and I hadn't read this before. No. I, have, I do read you religiously. I, I have I to confess. Wrote, I was hoping that you would read that review. Actually, I don't. I, I, what, the way that my week works is because I do all my reviews before Friday, and then I so I read yours on Saturday. Because I don't know whether you do the same thing. There's always a worry about reading I other people's. I don't like reviews. to read. No. Exactly. I don't like to read other. But people. I hadn't seen this, and I was so delighted. This is a five star review of Silent Running. Oh, it deserves more than five stars. Yeah, I'm and not, it's a yeah. beautiful and mysterious film about a wilderness adrift in the wilderness, which I think is such a lovely phrase. And that was the point at which I thought you and I will always be soulmates. I didn't know that you'd written that review. No, well, I actually, I'd written it, and I think the powers that be of the Guardian said, why are you writing this now? We don't have a peg for it. It's not been re-released. And I just said, I don't know, I just need to get it off my chest. And they just oh. said, uh, but anyway, I'm thrilled it's got into print uh, at last. I think it's an amazing film because it it's about nature and about the natural world. And right about now, in the era of climate strikes and Extinction Rebellion, Silent Running has become the authentic contemporary film for our time. And it's, about, it's a film which addresses a kind of smug, not smugness, but a kind of complacency they have that whatever happens to mankind, to humankind, whatever happens to Homo sapiens, nature will go on afterwards. Nature came before us. Nature will happen after us. And Silent Running is saying, maybe not. Maybe we will take nature down with us. Yeah. And this amazing image of Bruce Dern in space, carrying nature around, as if like Atlas with the earth on his shoulders. It's an amazing idea. And also what it does very cleverly, it subverts the idea, which is a trope in so many sci-fi films in 2001 and in Dark Star and in Duncan Jones' very interesting Moon, the idea of something, a piece of machinery deciding not to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, Bruce Dern is the human being and he decides not to not cooperate. He is not going to fall in with this theory that our natural world shall just be abandoned. He is going to save it. It's like Custer's Last Stand. I, 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 Silent Running for me is a is a is a contemporary text. I, I was so because I've you know I've banged on about Silent Running. I've wrote a book about it, and I've you know sort of fawned all over Doug Trumbull for as long as is possible. But it was so lovely to read somebody of your stature and of your you know well, the, mixed all the sort of the great writing in this standing up for it because it's still an unfashionable film to like, well, I, and I, it's I, lovely yeah. that it's near the back of the book as well because it's kind of like a little like a little Easter egg treat waiting for but you. But it's there, in there so. with the classic. The classics. It's oh, in there with, with Psycho and Raging Bull and all yeah. the rest of it. Well, well chosen indeed. So, um, is it out on sale now? It is. It is. Please I, go. I can recommend <laughs> it. It's, it's, it's a hefty time. I should also say, you know, all uh, things, uh, it, full, full disclosure, Pete and I went to school together. We did. Although you were much above me. You were the year above me. And, I uh, <laughs> you know, yes. and uh, so. Thank uh, you very thank much. Thank you. Yes. This is a fabulous book. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Peter Bradshaw. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I want to show you a trailer of a film which is out in cinemas at the moment that I reviewed in The Observer and on the BBC a couple of weeks ago that was one of the most powerful films I've seen this year or indeed in, in any year. It's had absolutely rave reviews and it's really easy to understand why. It's a very, very tough film, but it's a brilliantly made film. Uh, this is the trailer for Fosama, which is currently playing in cinemas and you, you really need to check it out. So here we go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Wad Al Khatib. Well, let me begin by saying, as you can probably tell, because there were subtitles on that, they, they, for some reason they, we weren't hearing the narration. Um, the, the film is narrated by you all the way through, so people may have read the subtitles but didn't hear the narration, so my apologies for that technical problem. Um, the film is an extraordinary document of five years, pretty much, and it is frontline reporting from inside... Uh, inside a situation that most of us watching it couldn't possibly imagine. Um, I, was, I felt when I was watching the film that there were times when I had to, you know, I almost felt like I needed to, to look away because it was so strong, but there is this, poet, this kind of poetic quality to it, which is that the film is delivered as an address to your, to your child. Can you, can you just say something about how that, that construction of the film came about? Because it was five years that you were filming frontline footage before you started putting it together as for summer. Sorry, that was the longest question anyone's ever asked. I, I got it. Uh, thank you first for having me today. And it took two years, and it's supposed to be like six months. This is one of the things why it like, really took a long time because of the huge archive that I have. And uh, it was something come through uh, two-thirds of the process of doing the film, okay. where we were uh, sitting, me and my fellow director, Edward Watts, who's not here today, but he's doing a Q&A now. So thanks for him. And uh, we were sitting together thinking about how we can make this story uh, acceptable by people. Yeah. And as we've, we've been told a lot that Syrian films is not like anymore being, uh, people want to, to see this or watch this. 
war films, the same things, refugee films, the same, the same things. So we were thinking about how we can make it something for people like to, to come to say, yeah, we want to watch this film. And there was a part of the conversation between me and Sama during many of these. Sama is your daughter. Yeah, Sama is my daughter, who you've seen in the trailer. Uh, there's really a very long conversation between me and her, even when I was just pregnant with her. And I was documenting this personal moment. And we've just got the idea that maybe everything will be linked if we make it for summer. Yeah. And we tried just like one second of this. And then we felt like, yeah, this is the idea. And my husband, who's in the film too, and he's a very tough man, he's never cried. <laughs> so when I've just called him and said, like, Hamza, look, we have this idea. And he's, he was on the phone. I can hear him. I was like, he just like, feel like he will he want to cry yeah. and then Edward was next to me said yes we did it <laughs> Hamza cried so this is the idea you should say that there's there's a moment in the film for those who haven't seen it in which Hamza actually says to you you cannot cry here there is no time for yeah. crying here he was doing this every day but he does that just briefly before he told you that he loved you yeah which is an extraordinary moment yes this is was something I hate to say it outside <laughs> but it was the truth he told me, like, yeah, don't cry. And you can it's not allowed for you to cry even. Yeah. And then, yeah, after five minutes, he said, I love you. The decision to stay is talked about in the film. You say to your child, you know, will you, will you, will you uh, blame us for staying or will you blame us for leaving? I know it's impossible to answer this in a sort of brief on stage, but the, the choices involved in staying... Was it always clear to you that that's what you had to do? And can you say why? Yeah. Um, actually, Ed, for two years, tried just to catch any answer different from this. And I didn't say it because for us, it was really, really clear that this is what we want to do. Yeah. And simply, it's really like we are Syrian, and this is our home. And we've, like, we've started the revolution in 2011 with many other friends and people who we knew very well. And then we we're knowing more people and our uh, community like changed a lot from people and we were all from the revolution uh, community and then we lost many people of them we've been we've seen um, friends who were just like sitting next to us and after like 10 minutes or one hour we've seen them like body so it, for us was just like the whole world is limited with Aleppo and everywhere else it's really nothing for us it doesn't mean anything so we just felt that this is the way how we can stay commitment for other people, uh, for the belief that we have about change. Mm -hmm. And really before 2011, we've never thought that we are really proud of being Syrian. And after 2011, we were so proud that, yeah, we can speak now, we can uh, just present ourselves in the way that we are. Now, the first time that people would have been aware of your footage was when uh, it was forming the basis of these uh, Channel 4 reports, uh, the Channel 4 news reports. Um, so how did that come about? How did you get the footage out? How, how, how did we see those reports? Uh, what I've sent to Channel 4 News was just a little bit of what I've done through the five years. And uh, here's Naveen, our executive producer of the film, and she was an adoptive uh, producer at Channel 4 News. And she's one of the people who really support me from the beginning. 
Uh, at the beginning was just uh, small reports where I don't, I, it was the first time I, working, I was working with an international channel. And I've just realized from the first report how different is it to send something very out. Yeah. And how amount of the audience or the views could, could see this kind of reports. Yeah. And after one week of a small report about uh, a 13 years old a child who's built uh, Aleppo, future Aleppo, in uh, just papers. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was just like, okay, nice story, very soft, very, uh, yeah, it speaks about the uh, situation, about the future, and just like normal story. And after one week, uh, like it was one million view. Yeah. So for me, I felt like maybe this is something will make really difference. And then we continue working together until like the last day when I left Aleppo. One of the things about the film is that in the midst of the the unfolding uh, horror, and there is some really horrifying material, there is a lot of laughter and a lot of life. We see a lot of smiles. We see um, we see wonderful interactions with people getting on with you know with cooking whilst all this stuff is going on. I mean, you know, I'm saying this from the point of view of somebody who is, has no first-hand experience of this at all. And actually, I think one of the strongest things about the film is that it made sense to somebody who has I know very very little about the situation, but I feel I knew more after your documentary. How did you balance those elements? of the stuff which is very, very alarming and the stuff which is more, said there is laughter, there are smiles, there is life. Uh, like, of a point of view of uh, people who were living there, for us, this was well, something very usual and we knew this. But when I was seeing this behind the camera, I was really amazed of this moment. And I was feeling that, you know, like this is why we survive. And this is why we stand to the end in this situation. Because of people who, uh, like in the film, they were, there's another family, Salem, Afra, and their kids. Like from, because of these people, because of this joy and this uh, happiness moment, mm -hmm. we really survived. And I was, was just trying to reflect that in the movie why we really st stayed strong to the end, why we really felt in, in every moment that we need to stay in Aleppo because of this mix between the horror and the strength mm -hmm. and the horror also and the happiness and the, um, the hope that you can create and at every level of the uh, massacres or the disaster or any bad situation. One of the things that helps the film as a piece of cinema, I think, is the score. I think it has a very, very understated score by Nanita Desai, whose work I'm a huge admirer of. And what I liked about it was that it never... It, it was very, very low-key, because with a film that powerful, you almost felt like everything needed to be understated. Was it difficult to get that balance between... Like, we were just taking a long conversation about how we will make it real as as possible yes. and not make the affection of even the editing or the music or any uh, element mm -hmm. to be like over the yeah. content in itself. Yeah. And it's really like just a great team of people, executive producer, Nita, who did the music, uh, our uh, editors. And it was just like two years of hard working on everything just to make it perfect for us. Mm -hmm. And really, when it finished, we felt that we couldn't do anything more to make the film for any change. Are you now working full-time for Channel 4 News? Um, now, yeah, with Channel 4 News. And it's just on the film now because it's uh, so full-time publicity. Yeah, so are you touring around with the film doing yeah. Q&As? And how's that going? How, what, what's the response been like in it's, cinemas? Uh, we were really amazed of 
how people around the world were very uh, welcoming the film and yeah. were received. And really, uh, we were editing in a very dark place, and we have, we have no idea about how people will receive the film. Mm -hmm. And the first screening was at South by Southwest in Austin. And the first screening, we were just sitting, watching how many people will leave from the audience. Right. We have no idea, really. We were just like, we've been told this film will be so tough. People will not maybe like engaged with right. this. And it's blood, and it's yeah. a disaster. And we knew that this is so much joy and love and uh, happiness, but we, we couldn't really judge. And we were really shocked when like the film goes on to the end, and no one leave, left, and then we have standing ovation. And actually, until now, in every screening, uh, there's something in, like inside me saying, like, this screening will be the, the, the bad one. <laughs> <laughs> and until now, I was like, every time, OK, finish. OK, then, and then people like, yeah. So I'm so happy, really, that people really care and engaged with the film. This seems like a foolish question to ask, but do you have plans for more filmmaking, or are you now dedicated to news journal? What, what, what will your plans be? I really don't know, <laughs> and this is so hard and tough for me to, to think about it right now. Uh, the film is for me not just a film because it's my story and it's more now, more than three million people who still live living in this situation in Syria. So I'm more thinking now about the impact campaign of the film, how we can use the film as a tool to make a change on the ground. So, I've, and when all this will finish, I hope I will, yeah, I will do more films and I don't know really if it's like news or uh, documentary or fiction, but mm -hmm. it will be something I, I really love. So, hopefully. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not the first person to tell you this because I've only read positive reviews of the film, and I know that it's had a. I do a radio show with uh, with Simon Mayo, and we've had mail from people who have been profoundly affected by the film. I'm sure you've seen this everywhere that it's played. Um, I, it is a really powerful piece of work. I'm in awe of it. So thank you so much. I hope that anybody who gets a chance goes along to uh, see it. I will watch your career with great interest. But thank congratulations you. on a thank really you. remarkable film. What I'll keep. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So immediately after this show finishes, there is uh, the European premiere of a new movie called Good Posture. I'm going to show you the trailer for it. The, the European premiere is like 20 minutes after we finish here. And there may be, although I think it's unlikely, a couple of tickets left. This is the trailer for Good Posture coming here immediately after us. This is where they live. What? This is where I'm staying. This is where they live. How is this a breakup then? I can wave you from my bedroom window. Yeah, we both window. know you won't. Don't slam my... Hi, Lizzie. Lillian, yeah. Oh, sorry. Nice to meet hey, you. Hey, I'm Don. Very nice to meet you. Hey, Daddy-o. I just got to the house. My room is super cozy. Only got three days until we're standing on Lillian, that's my wife, Julia. Hi. She doesn't know. You look just like your mother. Help yourself to books, but just don't take them out of the house, please. It's fine. I'm not much of a reader. You should read one of Julia's. Change your mind. Message me back, dude. All right, bye. So it's on straight after this. Please welcome to the stage writer, director Dolly Wells and Emily Mortimer.
Now, European premiere tonight, is that right? Yes. Okay. So um, <laughs> that'll happen. Like we finish here about sort of eight ten, and they'll turn around very fast, and they'll be. So I think there'll be like a waiting list for tickets or whatever. But if anybody would like to come along and see it, can you describe the film? I'm going to. We're going to show. I'm going to show a. a tra- I'm going to show something else in a little bit. But to tell me how. You, this is a terrible question. How would you describe the film? How would I describe? Yes. Go film? ahead. Um, not very well. I'm really. I realise that's a bit. I'm really bad at. Really bad at. But I suppose it's just, I shot, we made the film in 12 days. And when I wrote it, I knew I wanted it to you be. You shot the whole thing in 12 days? Yes. <laughs> wow. Okay, I'm really impressed because I've seen it. I had no idea. I didn't idea like it before, it. but now that no, I've no, seen no, you made it in 12 days. I liked it before, days. but now I'm even more <laughs> impressed. That's great. 12 days. Wow. But so the, the reason I suppose I'm bringing that up is I knew that I had to make, I knew it was going to be shot in that amount of time. And I knew that it was very small budget. So I was, I, it's a small story, I suppose that's what I'm saying. It's a small story about a sort of ostensibly not very likeable girl growing up. And I mean, I find her charming, but so it's just that it's a coming of age of a young sort of awkward girl finding her way. See, that's what I want you to say. I want you to say it's a coming of age tale, because that's what I think it is. But it's always terrifying if you say it's a coming of age tale. No, it's not. It's a science fiction movie. Stop it. <laughs> well, it is. And it's a science fiction movie. So the responses <laughs> to Good Posture have been really, really strong. It seems like it's going down very, very well at festivals. And were you, were you worried about it at all? I mean, 12 days, that's nothing yeah. at all. No, I was. What was ter- the first screening? The fir- well, the first screening was Tribeca. And I was, well, the, the first screening was sort of the editor flying to New York or to Brooklyn where I live and me looking at the assembly and just thinking, is there going to be enough? I mean, we shot this so quickly. Is I can't even sort of, oh my God, we're going to have to use everything that we shot. And, <laughs> and things happened like on the very first day. And I have a sort of habit of, if I get really scared, of going very sort of calm and weird. And, um, and on the first day, we only had Zadie Smith for about three hours. And people kept saying, um, the lenses haven't arrived. And I was going... Okay, so what we've got for three hours. And I was sort of walk around the room, and everyone would sort of step away like it wasn't their responsibility. And I was going sort of, so where did the lenses, where do the lenses come from? What, what does that mean? And she was downstairs for sort of three hours. And so then we used the video. I mean, that's why you know, there's all sorts of not errors, but things that become happy accidents. Yeah, happy accidents. That so, um, so I was amazed that there was a story to tell. I was amazed that there was enough to make a story that, you know, I mean, I've learned so much and there's so many things that, you know, aren't exactly as should be. But I did feel very pleased that the story I was trying to tell did was sort of coming across and that people were... Okay. Well, the highest praise I can I, I can give you is that I absolutely love the ukulele. We can't play it because it's towards the end, but I, the ukulele song just just completely <laughs> flattened me. And I'm a, I'm very very snotty about the use of music in it. So well done because that's hard earned. Because honestly, somebody produces a ukulele on screen for me. It's like okay, <laughs> you better have a really good reason for this. I'm not doing this kind of lightly. No, it's great. So listen, we also asked you um, because you know mm-hmm. because you, you're going to have to talk about the film again uh, in in about an hour's time to choose a guilty pleasure each okay and I know every time we do this there's kind of you know what is a guilty pleasure and it's like basically something that you love that maybe not everybody else does love in fact I think you've come up with choices which people do love so Dolly do you want to go first what was well, your you, guilty pleasure well, choice uh, the, I want to say that at first I sort of wrestled with it because I wanted to say Tootsie and then I realised it wasn't it was a sort of great film so Oscar's that, involved that's not yeah, guilty true. I, know, I, know, but I didn't want to I don't know I sort of wrestled with it anyway and then my husband was like well, say Dirty Dancing and I went, okay. So I said that's dancing. <laughs> because I did really enjoy it the first 16 times I saw it. 
Okay, I think we should show a clip. I have to say, we have played Dirty Dancing clips here before because it is a perennial favourite. <laughs> so let's have a look at your guilty pleasure, Dirty Dancing. Sorry about the disruption, folks. But I always do the last dance of the season. This year, somebody told me not to. So I'm going to do my kind of dancing with a great partner who's not only a terrific dancer, but somebody who's taught me that there are people willing to stand up for other people no matter what it costs them. Somebody who's taught me about the kind of person I want to be. Miss Frances Houseman. Sit down, Jake. Now I had the time of my life No, I never felt like this before Yes, I swear it's a See, I, I have two recurrent fantasies. One of them is that Patrick Swayze lifts me above his head. <laughs> and the other is that Richard Gere carries me off while somebody shouts, way to go, Paula, because those are my sort of two. So. <laughs> so do you go back to that regularly? Like if you're, if you're down or something, is it a film that you would go back to as a comfort? I should. I haven't for quite a long time, but I can remember when I used to watch that and I used to think about that line and think, or I could make it just a little, I could elevate it a little bit by saying it in French, by saying, personne me baby dans le coin. Which I don't know why it sort of got to me. But yeah, I, well, everything about it, because you think, here's this girl who suddenly like, learns to dance brilliantly. That was enough. Like when I was little, I used to love the idea that I could sec- would secretly be able to break dance or that I would be the person that would do like the gym routine that I would run and then suddenly go. <laughs> and so that was sort of almost enough. And then, the, yeah, I mean, so much about it made me happy. I loved her suddenly carrying the watermelon and suddenly seeing this other side of life, this sort of sexy, sort of grown-up, weird, you know, that she was accepted, that it was so sort of moral in some ways. I mean, yeah, I loved just so much about it. He was like a, it was just a dream. Yeah. <laughs> The, that's a pretty high bar, Emily. I know, I know. Mine isn't as good. No, but, but I you love do it. do that. Big it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. What was yours? Calamity Jane. <laughs> oh, okay. The room is with you. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear it. I do love Calamity Jane. Should we watch a clip before yes. you ever talk about it? Okay, yes, about. please. Boys, Chicago's the biggest noise in Illinois. Just flew in from the Windy City. The Windy City is mighty pretty, but they ain't got what we got. No siree. They got shacks up to seven stories. Never see any more than the glories. But a step from our doorway, we got them for free. They've got those minstrel shows. Purdy ladies in the big The, the most remarkable thing about that is how few cuts there are in it. I mean, nowadays it's everything true. is like cut every it's other step. There's like it's a, just, just a couple. One of, take, it's, yeah, much. it's done in one take. So, when did you first see it? Um, when I was a little girl, I think it was. I was a television addict when I was a little girl. But as a result, because when I was a little girl, there was only four channels of te- three channels of yeah, television. Three. And um, <laughs> made I, me feel really old. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an amazing. 
amazing education being a television addict as in in the 70s because there was amazing you found amazing things like BBC Two was basically films like that yeah. and or like films. how yeah. to build a house in Welsh on the Open University or something <laughs> but, and I became a film connoisseur from watching just like films I was too young to really understand but um, but just madly watching anything that was on and one of them was this and I just was so taken by it and I it's such a sort of it's so hard to describe but you don't want to sound you know it's a guilty pleasure so you don't want to try and really unravel it because it, it, then it's like you don't want to be pretentious about it and actually watching it now I think I think I just fancied Doris Day <laughs> I think that was it like it was so wild this girl I mean I didn't know when I was a child that she was this sort of 50s icon of kind of perfect sort of I mean, was she? I don't know. There was always a subversive strain in but there. But there, yeah. it's like so subversive and so brilliant. It's so radical. And she's this guy. And she really is brilliant at being that kind of whatever she is, cross-dressing. And it's, it's totally, it's the most brilliant performance. It's really wild and out there. There's a brilliant, I mean, even the, the songs are fantastic. In the name of civic virtue, they've got fountains there that squirt you. It's just <laughs> perfect line right, in the song. Yeah. And then scenes like the one where she goes to, she goes to get the actress from Chicago to come to the town and to Deadwood or whatever. And it's a girl dressed in the actress's clothes, the actress's assistant, basically, dress, dressing up in her outfit. So it's the wrong person. She's impersonating an actress. And, and, and it's kind of a sexy scene. And she's dressed in her underwear and Calamity Jane comes in and they kind, she kind of fancies her. And it's just so cool. It's wild. But it's just... And I think as a child, you kind of pick up on the mystery of it all. And, and the brilliant thing, I was thinking about it today, I was thinking... Oh, God, is it bad? Because I remember the scene where she does sort of clean up. You're longing for her to kind of get in prettified. Sorry, I just spat. <laughs> but, um, but she does, and she gets all pretty, and the actress makes her all pretty in her finery, and Howard Keel's coming riding, and you know that he, she's about to see him, and you know that she's in love with him, or he's in... No, no, then he's, she's in love with the other one. But anyway, and he's coming, <laughs> and then she goes out, and she jumps... She falls in the mud just at the last minute, and she comes in covered in mud. So Howard Keel never sees her in the pretty outfit, which is perfect, because then he falls in love with her for the real. And then when she gets kind of clean at the end, she's not... She's still in, she's still a cowgirl. She's in trousers and a little tie. It's not like she becomes a sort of feminine person. Oh, she, and anyway, I just love it. But I have forced my children to watch that film so often. It's the only film I have downloaded on my laptop that they both know it off by heart. And whenever anyone asks them what their favourite film is, they say Calamity Jane. And no one knows what they're talking about. Like, but anyway, I love it. Indoctrination is a wonderful thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, thank you so much for both coming. I think those are both actually very unguilty pleasures because I think they're both absolute classics. Um, so after the show here, it's the European premiere of Good Posture and you'll be introducing the film yes, and will. taking audience questions. So as I said, if anybody would like to go, I think you just go to the box office, ask them if there are any tickets left over. Thank you so much for bringing, uh, bringing the, both your guilty pleasures and uh, Good Posture. I wish you every uh, best luck with the film. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
And carrying on our action-packed show, here is a trailer for a film which opens this Friday. Um, uh, it's called Hotel Mumbai. Uh, you might have been listening to the radio on Friday when uh, Simon Mayer and I did the show. I was in uh, I was in Strasbourg and he was here and Jason Isaacs was our guest. Anyway, here is a trailer for Hotel Mumbai which opens on Friday. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, everyone, remember always, here at the Taj, guest is God. Switch off the lights. Everyone down. Do you have a family? Yes. I hope to stay alive and see them. Don't open the door, it's them. Run. Run! Hotel Mumbai. In cinemas and on Sky Cinema. September 27th. Film opens on Friday. Please welcome from Hotel Mumbai, Jason Isaacs. One of the reasons, one of the reasons I'm not in the trailer very much is that is the only shot of me where I'm not swearing. <laughs> so, um, Jason, do you want to just say something about the the film? It's very powerful. It's about a, um, a, a fairly recent and, and horrendous news story. But I know that for you, the 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 most powerful thing about the film is not the horror of the attack, but it's a film about people behaving extraordinarily well under terrible circumstances. Sure. It was inspired by a documentary called Surviving Mumbai, um, and the director, uh, who's in the audience, uh, my friend Anthony Maris, and his co-writer, John Colley, uh, went out and spent a year meeting all the survivors and the families of the dead, and even amazingly getting access to the recordings and the translation of the phone call between the controller of the gunman and the gunman. And... Uh, the reason to make the film, and the reason I suggest people go and see it, is that I, f I personally find it incredibly inspiring that there were, for instance, in that hotel, um, a reverse light, there was four days of attacks in which the whole of Mumbai was alight. There were 12 different attack sites, but there were bombs and slaughter everywhere. They ended up in this extraordinary building, which is a symbol of progressive, modern, diverse India. And for three whole days, no police or army got in there. There was just the 1,000 guests and the 500 staff. And amazingly, at the end of three days, 1,469 people were still alive. 31 people tragically lost their life. Uh, just over half of them were staff. But this is the story of how they survived. And they survived because all those divisions of race and religion, caste, socioeconomic divisions, they evaporated the second the bullet started flying. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of stories of extraordinary courage and heroism, not the Bruce Willis kind, but the quiet heroism of, of selflessness in the face of terror. And, uh, and frankly, in this context of the world we live in, we're both occasionally in our non-professional lives quite political. You know, there are, there are politicians driving wedges between us all the time. And it gives a lie to the nonsense that we would all knock each other out the way to get to the exit. Actually, the truth is, there's far more that unites us than divides us, and that's what the film celebrates. The, the film is directed by Anthony Morris. You said this is a first, a first feature, yeah? Well, see, normally I would go into how staggering it is that this is first feature. I mean, forget the subject matter for a, a moment. Just the sheer craft is, is magnificent. But I've got to spend the evening with him. He's sitting over there. Uh, <laughs> and, and frankly, he's quite confident enough already. Okay. We don't need to figure that. 
but it isn't. So let's just say the, the film directed itself. Debut. Obviously, yeah. it was down to the performances. It, it, it's stunning. He did an Oscar-nominated uh, short called *The Palace* before, which I suggest you look out some if you want to see why they somebody decided to allow him to make this giant film. But uh, uh, he'll be off and running from now on. Luckily, we have a deal. There was a moment in the film I didn't want to do. I didn't think it was truthful, and he did think it was truthful. And uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff you talk about on set. And he went, "Please, mate, please do it." And I said, I'll do it if I'm number five or better on the call sheet of your next three films. And we, we shook on it, so you've all heard it here today. <laughs> Is that true? Yes. Thank you very much. Now, I know that when I came on your show, uh, certainly I couldn't see your face, I can hear you, but see Simon's face. Simon was... was I don't know, conflicted by whether, first of all, you know, we're all friendly and he wants to be nice, but you're all objective reviewers. I thought it was great, very honest and fair reviews you gave it. But Simon found it a lot to take. And, it, and yes, it's absolutely. a lot. It's, a, it's, you know, this is a big experience, an epic, emotional kind of roller coaster you go on, particularly in the sense that you know it's true. Uh, actually, a lot more of the violence than you think is off screen. It's yeah, much yeah. less gory yeah. than films that are made to be violent. Uh, but the people involved, all the people that they met and the families of the dead asked us not to sugarcoat the violence. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's lots of stuff that's missed. So uh, we had at the premiere in New York, we had the ex-manager of the hotel, the man who was manager on the night. His wife and children were burnt alive in the hotel. Uh, he told them to stay where they are, they'd be safe. And he came and he was swelling with pride at this tribute to his staff and to how well people had behaved. He incidentally didn't leave the hotel. His family already didn't leave the hotel till the last guest had left, mm. more than three days later. So it is confrontational, but I think it, you need to contextualise what it meant for people to be as brave as they were. Uh, and, uh, and a lot more of it is in your imagination than you would think. Now, I want to sort of uh, drag you back to something from much earlier on in your career. Oh, so we're, we're part Hotel Mumbai, because I can't be my normal flip, crap, dad gag self. <laughs> well, that's, hold on, but go and see it. It's absolutely fucking brilliant. OK, moving on. It just is. I should, I should also point out, we also went to school together, so it's kind of... Mark was my teacher. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but I don't dye my hair, so, no, you no, know... No. You do think do you think I do it myself? <laughs> I don't do it myself. God's sake. I should say, yeah, my fingers dirty. Peter Bradshaw, who was, he was here still. Where are you, Pete? He's still there. He's so Peter the said the, the, the most, I think is absolutely right. It was the fact that we all went to the same school. And Peter said, he said, you know, it's incredible. People have this kind of idea outside the media that it's all some kind of boys club. He said, it's not true at all. They don't care which year you were in in Haberdashers. That's right. <laughs> Or which house we were in. Which house we were in, yes. So, um, I was in Slytherin. There is a, <laughs> there was a, there's a, there was, there's a film out in cinemas at the moment called Ad Astra, okay? Yes. Which I actually originally thought was about a bloke called Ad Astra. I didn't realise that meant to the stars. And it's a Brad Pitt movie, and it's directed by James Gray. I thought was it was a, a shampoo commercial. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the best hair in show business, Brad yeah, you Pitt. you love Brad Pitt's hair, don't you? I sat next to him when we were doing Fury, and David Ayer came in and said, we've got to fuck Brad's hair up somehow. So just like maybe, I don't know, cut chunks. Can I swear on your podcast? It's too, too late, late to late ask. Now, <laughs> he said, just like cut some chunks out of his hair or something. So they cut chunks out, and he went, nah, that looks awesome. Okay, so... <laughs> Let's get some grease, like like dirt and grease, put on his hair. And he goes, now he looks like he's in an Abercrombie and Fitch catalog. 
Let's just put a fucking helmet on him or something. <laughs> he's got the most extraordinary hair. Yeah, I mean, he's a very handsome man. Obviously, next to you, he pales into insignificance. The thing is, Ad Astra, which is getting rave reviews from everyone, it's all right, it's fine. There are some things in it that are great, there are some things in it that are silly, but the fact of the matter is, it is Event Horizon with interstellar knobs on. And when Event Horizon came out, 1997, it wasn't a huge hit, it was a film. <laughs> was, yeah, exactly. Can I tell you about the night it came out? Larry Gordon, very famous big Hollywood producer, he'd set up this stretch limo with all the cast for us to do this thing he did with all of his films, which we were going to drive around to all the cinemas in Hollywood and Los Angeles and go in at the back and just watch people scream and enjoy themselves and laugh, and then we'd go out on some you know, self-triumphant meal. And we went to the first cinema, and he went to the box office to say who we were, and he came out and he said, let's just go for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it wasn't a huge triumph. Okay, all right, so listen. So, Ad Astra, story is a mission went to Neptune, powered by an antimatter drive, and uh, then disappeared, now has come back. Oh, but something dark has happened, got to go out and find it. Event Horizon, mission went to Neptune, powered by a black hole drive, disappeared, now has come back. Oh, got to go out and find out what happened to it. And there is a tape that has been left behind, which your character has no. to de- has to oh, decipher. Yes. Yes, and this is my favourite thing. This was the moment when I was watching uh, Event Horizon the first time around. This is the moment I got the little tingle, which is what I really like from a science fiction film. Here is Jason explaining. There's my son in Event Horizon. <laughs> I've known you a long time. You never told me that. That's just it, DJ. I n- I never told anybody. But this ship knew about it. It knows my fears. It knows my secrets. Gets inside your head and it shows you. I wasn't going to tell you this. I've been listening to the distress signal. And I, um... think I made a mistake in the translation. I thought it said, liberate me, save me, but it's not me, it's liberate tutte me, save yourself, and it gets worse. There, I think that says X in fairies. Save yourself from hell. Whoa. I think... I think that's it. To quote Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's the best acting I've ever seen. <laughs> I think I got paid per second, so I was just, you know, just milking the dirt. Yeah, that's a, so we, we had the read, first read-through of the thing and the ending didn't really work. And actually, it's a problem that lots of those, I mean, numbers of those films about yeah. vessels or boats or ships that have gone to hell and back. And they've got a great first act, a great second act, and they're not going to quite know how to finish this. So we had the read-through and something didn't quite work. And we were all very friendly, to uh, the director and the producer uh, and I and Sean Paul Pertry. Anderson, Paul, Paul Anderson and, and Jeremy Bolt, who produced it, and, and Sean Pertry and I had done other stuff together. So we all went, I don't know about the ending. So they paid someone a lot of money, I think, to rewrite a new ending, which is what we shot. And they were made the film and then we went 
I don't know, the ending doesn't quite work, does it? So we reshot another ending. And so when you, when you chop there from the close-up to the ridiculous close-up, that's a different, like months later, trying to shoot it. And uh, apart from the fact that in the end they went, oh, let's, just, let's just put Sam Neill in a rubber suit and have him stab everyone. That's, that's <laughs> what, um, but apart from that... <laughs> You're right, that is what that's what happened. That is Poor what old Sam was in prosthetics from 4 o'clock in the morning like, until 8, and then he would just shoot until he fainted and then would stop. But... Um, <laughs> But that Irish, the, the Latin stuff there, uh, we did, and then somebody came through, somebody saw a test screen and said, you've got the, you've got the Latin wrong, it's, it's actually wrong. Went, oh, Jesus, we went back, and I think we might have shot another close-up, and we did it, and, and then when it came out, a couple of critics and people in the Latin went, no, no, the first bit was right, you got it wrong in the second <laughs> line, so the Latin's wrong. But it's had an amazing kind of cult yeah. that following that's grown and grown and grown over the years. It's now huge. It the, is huge, and it's about to be a, a, a TV programme. There's, some, there's something... I think it's a, it's a musical or something. No, it's I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, okay. uh, but now listen, listen but I mean, the amount of reviews of science fiction films that I've written in which I've said, and like Event Horizon, and believe me, I, I, it, no, it, keeps, amazing. it keeps coming I tell you, up. You know that thing when people, uh, I don't know if anyone here has any friends who are actors and you go backstage after a play and you go, the sets. Oh my God. <laughs> so when, when people review a film and they go, the, the cinematography, yeah. the set, but actually the sets in this thing were real yeah. characters. The Event Horizon itself felt like it had a character. Yeah. There were two ships, as the Event Horizon, which would be to hell, and the Lewis and Clark, which is white and squeaky clean. And you didn't want to shoot on the Event Horizon. When we were there, it had an atmosphere. I think they put organic material on the walls to look yeah. like blood. And over the time we were shooting, it began to smell yeah. and curdle and stuff. Um, but it was, uh, I remember the design of it like a character. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I think it is a really, it, it's a film which is full of really sort of vivid memories yeah. for me. Um, now, in that film, the accent that you're doing is... Very mild Irish. Very mild Irish. Because they didn't want me to. It's not the first time I've tried to sneak an accent yep. underneath. Exactly. <laughs> so the thing is, the thing is, Jason, so this, we're talking about two films. One of them you're doing kind of Russian accent. This one, that was just a hint of Irish. Because you have always been, you know, I know that you like an accent. So I was... Go I was, I was like go a wig. I was like Googling around on the internet. An and I found this. Want to look One of England's the, uh, greatest God. character actors, a chameleon of voices, oh, any accent, any character, any style. And brilliantly, Jason, there's, a, there, there's, there's an audio showreel. <laughs> so wrong to mug me in front of people. Like this. I should have dug into you. Ladies and gentlemen, story. available for weddings, parties, and bemitzvahs. Jason, pick a voice, any voice. Isaacs, here we go. It's your mouth. And it has a lot to look forward to. Like words. The Tooth Fairy. Finding that signature smile. That first kiss. Your mouth holds amazing possibilities. That's why we developed the Aquafresh science of 3-in-1 protection. For healthy gums, strong teeth, and fresh breath. Aquafresh. Amazing. Beam me up, Scotty. It gets better. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, now, where do you root out what you want? With five sections, the Thompson directory is bound to know. And my absolute... <laughs> my absolute favourite... George. Fate threw everything at the Bacardi family. The fire of 1880 couldn't stop us. Nor could a series of earthquakes. I don't know about you, but I feel like a strong Bacardi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
the only reason I get to do so many fabulous indie films is because I'm a whore. Okay, that's <laughs> perfectly fair enough. That's true. You once, I was on stage with you once, and you did a brilliant impression of Russell Crowe's Around the World in 80 Days accent in Robin Hood. Yeah. And it is, it is true that you, you have always had, I mean, I remember this from when we were in class together. You, you, you were always a great, like, not like a mimic, but you could do voices. It was a thing that you could. To be honest, uh, so it feels like a skill, looks like a skill, because I'm up here as an actor. But uh, I think one of the reasons I became an actor is I was always very uncomfortable in company. And I wanted to sound like whoever was talking to me, so I didn't stick out. So I come from Liverpool originally. I had a yeah. Liverpool accent, uh, although we had elocution at my state school in Liverpool. So with the, the hundreds of kids lined up going, my father's car is a Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> What's a Jaguar? <laughs> um, but anyway, I came to London, went to school, and everybody had a kind of London or estuary accent, and I, I was self-conscious, so I immediately became whatever people sound like at school. Then I used to go and skateboard to the South Bank. Yeah, yeah. And I went for a kind of thick Ali G, frankly, down there. <laughs> and I went to university and they all sounded like Elizabeth Hurley. And, uh, <laughs> so I went, I sounded like that. So I think maybe one of the reasons I felt comfortable in the rehearsal room is the first time I thought, it doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter what my, I don't need to worry about sounding like a North London Vulgarian. I, it's okay because I'm creating someone outside myself. I want to show your Russian from Death of Stalin. Ah, yes. This is great. Extensive we- research. Okay. <laughs> Sad day, soldier. Yes, sir. Sad day. I'll turn off, you handsome devil. <laughs> Stick in a frock and fucking ride your own self. <laughs> I won't take that as a compliment. Yeah, don't. Right, what's a war hero got to do? Get some lubrication round here. Ah, oh, Generalissimo. There he is, eh? Yeah. A great man. Seen a lot of death, but that, that is a loss. Tell me something. Mm. Why has the army been replaced by the NKVD all over Moscow? I mean, I'm smiling, but I am very fucking furious. Wow. It's just, it's great. I want to take the credit. I will take... I'm an actor. I, I'm a bottomless pit of need for praise. <laughs> so I will take as much flattery as you can give me. But Armando Iannucci is a genius, frankly. And all I had to do was stand there and say the words, surrounded by those geniuses, <laughs> you look very, very good. It is, but that is such a great film. And the best thing about it is, is that it's as nasty as it needs yeah, yeah. to be. But it's also, you know... It's, ve- it's a very fine line to walk the line because, you know, the tone... I, mean, I remember reading it thinking, this could possibly just crash and burn and be yeah, horrendously yeah. offensive. And to find a tone that was still allowed you to be funny, but honour the fact that he slaughtered tens of millions of people, but never... So all the violence is off-screen, you'll notice. The, viol- the gunshots fire off-screen off the edge of the frame. Yeah, yeah. You don't see anybody. I must stop touching him. I'm sorry <laughs> The, until the end, until you see Beria yeah. killed. Um, but what was extraordinary, finding out, because I, I paid no attention in school to anything, but particularly, I don't think we covered any of that stuff in history. But it's all true. Everything in the film yeah, yeah. is true. In fact, some of it is understated because it wouldn't be funny if you tell the truth because it goes too far. Um, so, yeah, it was, the whole thing was a gift. I, I, it arrived, this script, and I read it, and I thought, that's the best part in the film. It's clearly a mistake. It's come to me. <laughs> must, they must have meant Jason Statham or someone, and they've got the wrong thing. And I saw, just phoned up and said, yes, straight away. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I want to I finish by just asking you quickly. Um, I, I, I'm not a fan of Michael Bay's films because you've worked with Michael <laughs> Bay. But no, no. But you, so t- tell us because you're you're in Armageddon and you're yes. the, sort of, you're sort of like the voice of reason in Armageddon, the person who sort of. I'm the smartest man on the, the planet. Give me my property. Yes, okay, thank you very much. Um, 
Because I, I was offered one of the astronauts in Armageddon. I was doing, I was in Northern Ireland, I was in Belfast, I got a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning, they went, hey Jason, it's Chris, I got Tony on the line, and Mike and Bert and George, and Mary and Tom, and I go, hello? <laughs> and they said, no, I'm calling from ICM and Disney, and we have Michael Bay's office, and the wonderful news is Michael wants to offer you a part in Armageddon. And I went, Wow, why is that? And they said, it's the, remember you were here six months ago? There was a space movie, I had a meeting, and I went, no. And they said, well, let's play the part of Tom. And I went, who's that? And they said, he's one of the astronauts, and you're going to get to go on the vomit comet, you'll do the space training and everything. And I went, uh, okay, that sounds great. They said, the only thing is, it starts on Tuesday. And I went, well, I'm, I'm in Northern Ireland, I'm doing a film called Divorcing Jack. You know, and they went, Jason, this, this is a Bruce Willis project. And I went, well, this is a David Tewlis project, but I can't, I can't just drop out. You know, they said, we'll take care of that. I said, you can't take care of it. It's a job. I mean, I've signed a contract. I mean, I'm a professional actor. Hello? <laughs> John, Paul, George, Mary, Bert, anyone? Uh, so they called back and they offered me the booby prize, which was to play Quincy, the, the professor. It was eight days' work over six months. And the agent went, that would be fantastic. They'll pay your subsistence. You'll live in a hotel for six months. It'd be great. And you just do a few days' work. So I went in the first day, did the scene, that is the one yeah. scene where I have lines. Michael Bay goes, do we have you for the run of the picture? I said, yeah. He goes, I'm going to put you in every day. I'll give you a clipboard. We'll put you next to Billy Bob. We'll throw you a line now and then. I went, oh, that's Great. So, <laughs> so for six months, I was an extra standing next to Billy Bob, grabbing for lines like fish on a fish farm. You know, yeah, that's my experience. There's, uh, because we kind of short. I want you to. So we got to go. They're no, 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 no. I want you to tell me. Yeah. Um, tell me the story about. You know, the, the the whole point about it is, is that they have to train. They have to train rock people to be astronauts. That's right. Yeah. So genius. I have no idea what you're talking about. You that, said that you said you said you were on set, and the whole thing about it is, is an asteroid coming, and so they they need people who can drill. Oh, rocks. I see. Yes. Well, I I don't know if this is the story. I'm I'm playing the smartest man on the planet, and uh, so uh, of course it's uh, a lot easier to train uh, oil drillers to be astronauts, which takes like 20 years of training, than it is to train astronauts to dig a hole. But that's fine. <laughs> uh, and at some point, I'm illustrating, I'm illustrating to them how my amazing plan is going to work by holding two papier-mâché asteroids, and I think this for all time will be the low point of my entire <laughs> career. Yeah. And it's there for all to see. Yeah. Never wanted to die so much. Yeah. Jason, um, I, could, I could talk to you all night. Um, well, we will. We'll go so back. We'll go back, exactly. Uh, I'd just like to end by saying Hotel Mumbai is in cinemas. Uh, it's in cinemas and it's on Sky. But you can watch it on Sky if you've got one of those giant things. It's fantastic, but it is a, it is a magnificent cinema experience. Go and see it on the big screen if you can. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Isaacs. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this Kermode on Film podcast. If you want to come along live, you can get tickets from the BFI website, but bear in mind they do sell out pretty quickly. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and keep watching the skies. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.